It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs by the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Hi, everyone. We're back at it after a bit of an extended break. Good to be with you. And back on track with the 247 Talk this week. A visit with York Howe from Switzerland. And to make up for lost time, we've got a long episode here. The runtime on this one, I think, is going to be a little over two hours. So maybe an extra cup of coffee or chill another beer, uh, whatever your flavor. A little bit about our guest. York is an avid airhead enthusiast. He's logged many, many miles on a Paralever R80GS. He purchased it brand new in 1990. Still owns the bike. He's also created some unique LED lighting and voltmeter solutions for the 247. His website, which we'll link in the description, contains voluminous information on maintenance history and modifications he's done on that bike over all these years, as well as a complete list of electrical components he's offering for sale for the 247. So remember, a link to his site in the description section. Please take a look at it when you get a minute. Want to dip into the mailbag? Happy to say we did have some nice feedback on the K75 episodes. I was hoping that would be the case. I know many of you are also K-Bike enthusiasts, either owning one or have owned one in the past. And case in point, we got a letter from Andreas in Germany who wrote to say that listening to those K75 episodes reminded him of all the good times and travels on his K75C he said that bike carried him around the world on several different trips. So, Andreas, well done, my friend. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks for writing. William Plam is back with us this week. We'll chat about Siebenrock cylinder kits that he sells at Boxer 2 Valve. Some useful information out there for those of you who may be looking to refresh or upgrade your top end. Finally, a note about the website. It seems like I've been talking about this for an eternity, but... It will be up in the next few weeks, and we plan to have a whole lot more details and a launch to tell you all about in our next episode in a few weeks. For right now, though, we're off to Switzerland, where I burned a number of international minutes on my calling card, quite happily, I might add. This is a fun and informative conversation with York Howe on the Airhead 247 podcast. Pleased to be on the line with York. And first question, where are you? Where am I calling today? You are calling to beautiful Switzerland. I'm located in western Switzerland, halfway between Lausanne and Geneva, up in the mountains at 1,000 meters. And if I look right outside of the window right now, it's snowing. It's white outside. Wonderful. I kind of suspected that would be the weather situation uh, this time of year. 
And no, it's just been in, in, in the canton of Wallis this morning, and over there it has been snowing all the time. Here's a mixture of snow and rain, but we're getting towards winter. So this is the time of year, York, where you've got your motorcycles in the garage. You've probably done, uh, maybe done some preparation for the winter. So what motorcycles do you currently have? What's in the garage right now? Well, actually, I have two. One is the RATGS with, with the HPN frame reinforcement, and the other one is the K100LT. The HPN is a bike, also the, the R80GS is a bike that I bought new at the time. It was really the thing that where I said, uh, okay, it's my, it was around my diploma, and I said, okay, I'll get that for my diploma as a gift to myself. And uh, I've possessed this bike ever since. Let's talk about that. So that uh, R80GS, that's a Paralever model, uh, if I recall correctly, a 1990 model. So let's go back in time uh to the purchase uh, of that bike, tell yeah. me, tell me what was going through your mind. What were your options at at a motorcycle? What what made you land on that particular model? Well, I've always been into motorcycling from the touring side, and I've been quite fascinated about more or less the all road bikes uh, and also the off road bikes. Not so much the motocross, but the idea of the. RITG slash S, that means the bike that could go pretty much everywhere. And as a poor student that I was in the beginning, it was quite expensive. I mean, this was the top of the line bike of, that BMW had at the time. And uh, before the GS, I had actually two Suzuki's, a 250 and a 400 GSX. Very nice bikes also. And I was always looking for the GS, and then BMW upgraded this to the, the, from the G slash S to the GS. And I read the first few reports about it, and I said, okay, that's the bike I'm going to get one day. And uh, around 1990, there was just uh, the, the, the model change towards the new models. I ordered mine just before. So it's the last one that has the small cockpit before they introduced the summer 1990 models with the bigger windshield and the fairing, the, the, the bikini fairing. And, uh, yeah, I went to the dealership, had already done some test rides before, and then looked at my bank account and said, okay, let's place the order. So I emptied my, my bank account and uh, exchanged that against a very broad smile and grinning face. <laughs> I can imagine. And what color was it originally? Yeah. What Was white. it white? Yes. It was the beautiful white one. Uh, actually, uh, for the 800, you only had the choice between the red one and the white one. And I think the 1000 model was mostly the, the bumblebee, the black-yellow one. And this was also available in another color. I think it was also white. I, I like yeah, for, uh, I like the uh, the uh, alpine white uh, color there. That's a smart exactly. look. Very smart look. It looks light, especially, yeah. <laughs> and do you... I kept the bike ever since. I'm, uh, uh, it would appear I'm one of the few guys who really kept his bike from the very, day, uh, very first day on uh, throughout all the years. That is rare. It is very rare. And do you recall... I get. Was it uh, marks that you were paying back then? How how much? Yeah, this was Deutschmark. This was Deutschmark at the time, 
And uh, actually, in the preparation of our interview, uh, you asked me for that, and I, I went through back through my old uh, binders, and I found even the the invoice for the bike because I'm I'm a scientist by training, so there, so I'm I'm used to to keeping records, and I found it cost me eleven thousand three hundred and sixty Deutschmarks at the time. That included a little tachometer, the lower mudguard the crash bars, which were an option on the 800cc model, the lockable fuel cap, which was also an option, and the higher version of the seat. I had all the, the extras listed on the uh, on, on the sales contract, but it was really filled out by hand. It was the good old times when dealerships pre-internet were really <laughs> they were human beings, and uh, it was not so much of a glass, a crystal palace, but uh, you would really talk to the mechanic, yeah. And did you say uh, the tachometer was an option you purchased there? Yeah, the RPM, that was, a, that was a, an option for the, the RPM meter, I mean, really. Uh, I always have to look about that because the tachometer in German is the speedometer. That's, that's right. The RPM counter, the little one, is the, the, that was optional for the 800. It came along with the 1000 again. Now, do you still have that on there? Is it still functioning? I mean, um, right now I have to put the parenthes around the whole thing because in summer this year I had a major crash with this bike. Oh, no. Major accident, a major accident. Uh, circumstances are not exactly clear, but I ran into a car frontally, broke my arm, uh, was out of operation for quite a while, and the bike has was nearly totaled in the sense that my insurance initially refused to ship it back. And I said, guys, look at it. The frame can be redressed. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the bike is now here in the garage, completely disassembled. And I'm waiting essentially for HPM to tell me when I can ship it back to them to, the, to, to verify the frame. So that frame... Essentially the, the, essentially, the whole front is destroyed. It, uh, the, the crash took away the front wheel. Uh, the whole fork, the instruments, uh, anything that's, uh, that's around the fork is destroyed, including the fork. Um, apparently, I can be quite happy that I'm alive, but it's at gut. Wow. All the time, all the gear. I, uh, yep. Looking at the, uh, at the remainders of my gear and also of the helmet, I can tell uh, the helmet did its job. And uh, I'm quite happy that I survived this with uh, a lot of blue stains and essentially just a broken arm. Do you recall this? Do you recall the circumstance of, of the crash? Um, not exactly. I have a total blackout mm -hmm. for the, the precise crash. I can remember. I still remember the moment when I took a picture before that crash. We were, we were riding with friends on the HBN meeting in in in, in, the, in May in Germany. And then the next thing I remember is I was laying on the ground and the friend said to me, okay, everything will be okay. And I said, oh, wait, did we want to go uh, eating chocolate cake? <laughs> and I, I have a total, yeah, I mean, food is important for me, yeah, especially sweets. And uh, yeah, then I went, was brought to a hospital with a helicopter. And uh, that's one on the two days later, friends came visiting me. And that's where I first saw the pictures of the bike. And I say, I can say she took quite a, a bunch of the crash. Wow. The astonishing, is if you, the astonishing part is if you look at the pictures from the crash, the bike is standing in the car, in the front of the car. It's standing upright. The saddlebags are still there. Uh, but uh, the, the front looks a bit strange. 
Were you hesitant? Whatever. Were you hesitant after the crash to continue riding? Did, did that give you any pause? Um, good question. I have not been riding since, but this is mostly due to the fact that the accident happened in May and it took about four months for the insurance company to organize the transportation and I have the license plate on that bike. And then when it, uh, when it, was, uh, when it came back, we were going towards autumn here where there was degrading uh, and I still need to buy uh, another motorcycle suit and all that, but it's some, something has a bit changed, I have to say. Mm-hmm. It's not that, I, uh, that I'm hesitant, but it's, it's something like... I can't exactly describe it. It's something like someone has, uh, has thrown a switch and I need to get used to it probably again. Wow. It's not that I'm afraid of it or whatever. Absolutely not. It's just not, not in the mood. It's difficult to describe. Even, even for myself, it's an unusual feeling because I was always addicted by motorcycles. And whenever I had to get off or whatever it was, I was always the first one asking, okay, when can I get back on the bike? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have a... I have a similar story. I was involved years ago in a in a crash. Thankfully, didn't do much damage to the motorcycle, uh, other than a bent handlebar. Um, but it was a, a little traumatic. And I recall what I did was I went home. I was able to drive the bike home, and I went uh-huh. home, um, cleaned it, washed it, polished it, detailed it. I wanted to reconnect with that bike again in a way, so I was not afraid of it and so i was not hesitant to get on it i really spent some time just reconnecting with it uh and that was sort of how i got over the initial shock and maybe a slight bit of hesitancy to get back on it uh in your case a a little bit of time has passed and obviously you've got some repair work to do uh and and getting this back on the bike i imagine though all that said you're looking forward to having it back in one piece soon is not really uh, the, the bike is disassembled which was quite also strange because the first time I totally disassembled this bike was when I prepared it for sending to HPN in 2017 uh, that was a completely planned disassembly uh, and I could do that in uh, pretty much 24 hours you have in 24 hours you have to wear the bike documented stripped down and the frame ready to to ship here of course with the whole front bend there was quite some more, uh, more work to do. It was kind of unbending and getting to the, the, the screws and trying to get the steering head off and uh, all, uh, all those little details. So that took quite some, uh, some time. In addition, I couldn't quite move, nicely move still. I, I was less, uh, lacking some force from the impact because essentially I was, I think uh, during the crash, I was holding the handlebar. Mm. And I took quite some impact in the in both wrists, so I, I was lacking some force in the in the hands after the after the accident. But the, all this is recovering quite nicely, and I'm actually really looking forward to build that bike back up again. Well, the good news but is already already in contact with HPN because the guys were at the same meeting where uh, oh no, yeah. no, 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 it, yeah. it's the HPN, the annual meeting that we do that we do. It's it's quite a secret, not exactly secret. If you're in the forum, you know where it is. But yeah. Um, the two HBN guys, whenever they can, they, they show up, of course, and uh, they looked at each other and looked at the bike and uh, he said, yeah, Freddy, you can redo it. You can, you can get that back up again. Yeah, so uh, I'm it, quite it, confident. It, also, looking at the frame, I noticed that the frame, for example, is a little bit 
bent towards the engine, but it's not folded. You see that there's no nothing that's ripped, nothing that's folded or something like that. And even when I lifted the engine out of the frame, nothing snapped. It just came out normally, like a, like, like a normal frame. So I'm quite confident that this is uh, completely repairable. Well, if there's any good news here, you probably have the most capable technicians putting that bike back together, at least as far as the frame goes, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm okay. taking that as a compliment. <laughs> yes, 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 very much so. Um, okay, so let's... We'll, and I, we'll talk about the bike a little bit more. I'm glad we got into that. Let's backtrack a little bit. I want to ask you about your introduction to motorcycles. And let me preface that uh, with a short story here. I have a friend called Upe, uh, who's from Switzerland. He lives in Texas now. And uh, we've been friends for a few years. We've been doing some riding together. And he told me a story when he was growing up as a young man in Switzerland his first memory of a BMW motorcycle was seeing a man on a slash two carrying his oh. mi carrying his milk to town uh, to go to the processing plant on a backpack. And that image of that black slash two motorcycle and the sound and the style of it caught him at a very young age. He got the bug at a very young age. And that, and I can okay. just imagine yeah. that, that sort of scene uh, as he described it. Uh, what was it, do you, was there a moment like that for you? Uh, it was not a milk can, but uh, it happened around late school pretty much. It must have been kind of around 1980-ish. I was at school, and that was the time, usually in Germany at that time, at about 16, people can get their first small motorcycles, usually 50cc bikes at that time. You had either the Mokiks that were limited to 40 kilometers per hour, or the unlimited ones, which is... Uh, uh, the, the Kleinkraftrad, which was a, a special kind also, but all little two-strokes, nothing very seductive. And then one day I saw one of the guys coming to the school with an R75 slash 5. I remember that it was a slash 5 because afterwards I looked up the instruments. And you know the slash 5, they have this beautiful speedometer-tachometer combination in the headlight. You know what I mean? Indeed. Yeah, and I saw that bike. I saw him riding around it, and and I loved the the, the the sound of the engine, just this deep blubbering sound, which is completely different from the ying <laughs> of the two-stroke engines. And yeah, just I said, "Wow, what kind of bike is that?" And that got my my interest in motorcycles. The BMW Motorcycle Owners of America and BMW Motorrad have teamed up for a 10% rebate for MOA member purchases of original BMW apparel, accessories, and all OEM parts. In essence, if it has a BMW motorcycle part number, MOA members can earn a 10% rebate on the purchase. Those of you doing a big refresh or restoration on your 247, no doubt this can save you some cash. Or... Maybe you're in the market for a new riding suit or jacket. Those are included as well. Every purchase made at a BMW Motorrad-based dealer in the United States, for example, Max or Bob's BMW, 
or online at shopbmwmotorcycles.com qualifies for the rebate. MOA members simply submit purchase information directly to the MOA for the rebate. Rebates are managed by the MOA and members are free to support any dealer of their choice where original BMW parts, gear, and accessories are sold. This promotion is scheduled to run through the remainder of 2023. So if you're already an MOA member, well done, and you've probably already taken advantage of this offer. If you're not an MOA member, visit the About section of this podcast for information on the MOA's free one-year membership promotion and start earning 10% back on all BMW parts, apparel, and accessories. Thanks to our friends at the MOA for supporting our efforts here. Now, back to our chat with your cow. That kept my, my interest in motorcycles. And then I had the advantage. Also, I needed to go to the nearest city, and one, one of the guys from school said, hey, uh, okay, I'll take you along on a motorcycle. And this was someone who had a Kava Z550. I remember also, it was around the car, the, the time when people were, we were starting that 17, 18. Um, he took me to the city and he did not the mistake that, uh, do the mistake that many beginners do. That means uh, sh- I show you what the bike can do, you know, uh, ride fast. And uh, he did not do that. He rode very calm. I loved it. Mm-hmm. On the way back, drove home with the bus from school and told my parents, you know what, I'm not only getting the car's driver license, but also the one for the motorcycles. <laughs> and my parents were, what? <laughs> my God, what happens to you? Are you sick? What, what, what's going on with you? And even the, 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 um, the car teachers also did this, what? Do you, are you really sure you want that? It's so dangerous. I said, I don't know. I don't care if it's, if it's dangerous, but uh, I like it. And actually, I didn't have the, uh, then I made my driving license, got an ATCC Suzuki, which I drove for about one year. Essentially, it was because uh, we had a pretty good Suzuki dealership around. They had quite nice prices. That bike actually finished in the, uh, also in a crash. It was kind of someone was cutting my priority. And then when I tried to, with the drum brakes, I said, okay, braking doesn't make sense. I tried to escape and the guy turned exactly in the way where, where I had to device my the, this escape route. So I crashed into that, jumped essentially over the car, <laughs> had, 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 had no, nothing damaged. Also, uh, at that time, full uh, combination uh, motorcycle uh, clothing. And uh, I immediately ordered a 250 afterwards. So that was the Suzuki GSX 250, which I had from 83 to 86 ish. And rode that bike uh, 57,000 kilometers. It wow. Was, I, I went to that stage 250, 400 because in Germany at that time, you were mostly hampered by insurance primes. That means if you're, if you're a starter and you would ride in from the beginning start with a, with a bike of 50 horsepower, it would be really, really expensive. Mm-hmm. So I started with the 250, upgraded then later on from 1986 to the GSX 400. Which I where I added four one hundred three thousand kilometers you know, uh, on uh, in four years only on that bike. And when I sold it, the guy was asked, "Ah, yeah, I want to buy that bike. How many kilometers? One hundred three thousand. And he said, "Wow, are you a, a, a tester for motorcycle <laughs> <laughs> what is, 
I don't have a car. <laughs> it's my only means of locomotion. University at that time was 250 kilometers from home, so every weekend is was 500 kilometers of fun because the way uh, to go forward and back, I had the choice between hitting the highway, which is absolutely boring. It's yeah. Not, I mean, in Germany, it's called Autobahn for a reason. It's not a motorcycle bahn. <laughs> it's it for cars. And uh, the, uh, the alternative is taking a bit more time and 250 kilometers on little side roads uh, with lots of fun. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. But that's a great yeah. story about the uh, seeing the Slash 5 for the first time. Uh, oh, yeah. It, it, in Nürburgring Green, it, it was really fascinating. Oh, it was it, wait, Nürburgring Green? Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, gosh. Don't ask me if it's a short or long wheelbase. I don't recall that one. Yeah. But I saw this bike, and I thought, uh, also, you remember the, this, the seat that it had with this, this railing around mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the rear part? I found this so totally classy. Oh, yeah. No kidding. Boy, that's... Uh, and, then I, and, and then I was looking at that bike and compared to the Japanese bikes, and said, why does the BMW have such a huge thing between the cylinders? <laughs> Because if you look at the same thing, Uh, Japanese crankcases, they look smaller because all the cylinders are in the block on the side. That's right, that's right. And everything is more compact, but on the BMW, everything is bigger in a certain sense. But so, I liked it. It, it, it. it was inspiring confidence, and I liked the sound of that. I said, one day I'll get one. That made an impression on you, obviously. So, and, and as I mentioned, the Slash 5 was the first uh, BMW I purchased, And I think the first one I actually saw it was parked uh, at the university uh -huh. where I was. I bought it from uh, from a lawyer uh, secondhand there. But what, so that being said, that bike caught your attention for a number of reasons. Sort of, I think visually and 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 the the sound it made and made also, an impression. Saw the guy riding off on that bike. It looked just solid and serene and. Yeah, there was something to it that was not there with the, those small 50cc bikes. Yeah, and so... Not, not, not with the Japanese bikes that, are, that were around. And so all these years later, how do you, how do you think about the airhead uh, in, in, that, in that aspect and in that realm? What continues to be the appeal for you these days? It makes me smile. That simple. It, it makes me smile. It's, it's that simple. Example... I remember uh, a few years back when I was still very much I had uh, in, in connections with the BMW dealership around here. They had their usual, they kind of tried a new bikes, come along. Uh, so I went there, went on the what was it, 1100 or 1150 or 1200 at the time. Drove it. You ride it, of course. They can do anything better. They accelerate better. The engine has much more power, the brakes. Of course, you have ABS, you have traction control system, you have everything you want. And I came back, put it there, said, okay, great bike. Went on my airhead, started it, and then the, the, I had this grin on my face. I said, that's character. It's, I, I just like this, this little bit, uh, yeah, the vibrations that are there, the sound of it, it's... It accelerates less. The brakes are worse. The suspension probably is also a bit worse, but it makes me smile. It's, it's a thing where you, it's a bike where you can build a connection that's not there with many others. So, I don't know if you, if, you, if, if, if you understand what I mean here. I do, 100%. Uh, I, I, 
I feel the same way. Uh, I've owned newer bikes. Uh, the most, in, in fact, a few years ago, I bought a uh, Triumph Scrambler 1200 uh, XE, the big sort of 1200 yeah. dual sport bike, because I'd wanted for the longest time to own a modern motorcycle. I never had bought a new, uh -huh. never had owned a new motorcycle, never a modern motorcycle at all. And York, uh, I I had it for about two years. That was it. I sold it and bought and bought a '78 Gold uh, RS. I see. Mm -hmm. I see. How much did you put on the trial? I'm oh maybe six seven thousand. Not much. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. I just didn't get along didn't. with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's it. I often observe the new bikes that are on the market. One thing I don't like also with the newer BMWs before perhaps the 1300, now the very new one, they are loud. I don't like this, the, the system in the exhaust, uh, in the exhaust that, that is in there only to regulate the, 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 the noise for exhaust regulations in Europe. I mean, we are living here in St. George which is a little village in, uh, on the countryside, and we are living on the road that leads up to the, near, the, near, the nearest mountain pass. In summer, I can immediately tell you in the morning if it's nice weather outside, because even, even if you still lie in bed, you hear people brawling up the mountainside. <laughs> could immediately tell the Harleys, and yes. you can immediately tell the BMWs. <laughs> not the loudest bikes, and... It, even if it's a stock BMW with, with this exhaust system with the valve and the exhaust, where they open and close it on, on, on certain uh, RPM right, systems, right. I don't like that. It's too loud. And I have many people that say it's too loud, and BMW then says, oh, but people want it. I'm, ho I'm, I'm still having hope because for the very new 1300 GS, it, uh, I, I read the first reports that people say it's, it's not as loud as, as before. I mean, and that's just loud. It's not a sound. It's it's not a nice sound. I mean, the nice sound is the the two valve air. It's best even with the old two and two uh, exhaust, like the, for example, the R100. If you take a slash seven or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's I yeah yeah. The, the, only hear the blah 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 blah. You yeah. have no mechanical noise, nothing. Yeah, I think the my my favorite sound is uh, the twin shock twin exhaust. Uh, of that era, the slash six, slash seven, the 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 pipes, uh, the balance sound, the way the pipes are tuned, uh, it's it's really a pleasant noise. Let's go back a little bit. I wanted we were uh, visiting, of course, about your uh, R80GS, and I want to go back uh, in time a little bit. I guess after many years of ownership, uh, sometime around 2017, I think you mentioned. Uh, you decided to disassemble HPN that bike yeah. and do the HPN conversion. So my first question on that is, what was the impetus for you to do that? Were you uh, doing different kind of riding and wanted to reinforce the bike? Was the bike ready for a sort of update and upgrade? Uh, what made you go that route? Actually, I have been in uh, some motorcycles for, uh, forums at that time, and there's one little one, which is the HBN forum. Um, not much traffic, not, not many people in there, but quite nice discussions, and we're, uh, I, I was involved in it. Someday, one of the guys said, hey, why not meet? Should we make a forums treff? That means a real, an annual meeting, not necessarily a tech meeting, but just 
meet people, eat something together, or stay some, some time together and ride together. I said, okay, let's get in there. And uh, that's when I really met some of the people on the forum face-to-face, quite nice contacts. And most of the HPNs that showed up there were really the totally modified bikes. I mean, if you go on the HPN website, first thing you'll see is the rally bikes. That means totally modified bikes. You barely recognize the engine, everything else, fork, frame, gas tank, everything has been totally modified. Expensive, that that kind of modification starts from 7,000 euro upwards. It was never an option for me. I said, I don't want to do rally driving or whatever. I just want my solid touring bike. And then I was discussing with Klaus Pepper, which is the P in HBN. And he said, yeah, why don't you do the standard frame reinforcement? I said, what do you mean, standard frame reinforcement? And uh, then he explained to me they have... They they can essentially take the standard frame and put the the reinforcements around the swing arm, around the steering head, and around the back of the frame, so uh, under the gas tank. And they have actually, this is not pointed out on their website because they want to be known for the sport bikes, for for those full-fledged modifications. And the, the, the price for that basic reinforcement the frame reinforcement is about 800 euros. That's nothing. Wow, that's very affordable. And then I said, okay, wait. How much do I want to need to, to, to wait for that? Because HPN is known for long waiting lists, but that's mostly for people that don't exactly know what they want or they, they order the, 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 the full reinforcement. So that was in 2015. Then I said, okay, Klaus, please, please uh, get me a number for my frame. I mean, HPN always gives frame numbers. So I received my 0619 number uh, for the frame that was in late 2015. And then it take, took some time. I mean, HPN, they have, there are only two people working there. Uh, both are, I think, over seven, well over 70 now, uh, but uh, still in, 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 in great shape. And then in, seven, in summer 17, I got a mail saying, okay, can you send your frame now? I said, okay, send me the box. I mean, it's a shipping crate. It's it's a simple cardboard box. I disassembled the bike within 24 hours in my garage. It's really, I spent the whole day in the garage taking everything apart, putting it in boxes, taking pictures, not necessarily cleaning. And then I sent the frame to Germany. In the meantime, I took care about the engine block, changed the timing chain, mm-hmm. did the oil chain, replaced the pushrod seals. Had the subframe, the rear subframe powder coated, and the luggage precarious and center center and all that, and the, yeah. Let, so, well, yeah. Let me ask you real quick: What was the mileage on the bike at this at this time, or the kilometers? Uh, it was. Oh, let me look at my side. It must have been something like one hundred fifty thousand ish. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It was quite interesting in the sense that uh, no, wait, wait, wait. wait. No, 190,000. 197,000, actually. So it was due for a, a little bit of a refresh, maybe. Yeah, but uh, still, it's the first time that I took the engine out of the frame. Hmm. It, it was a strange feeling, I can tell you. Mm-hmm. I had this bike for so many years, since 1919, uh, 1990. So I was there 27 years later and took the engine out of the frame. It's a strange moment when you do that. Why am I doing this? <laughs> but I can tell you, then 
And uh, so the bikes, uh, the frame came back. Only FIFA five weeks later, that's the advantage. If it's only the basic reinforcement, otherwise, if you give the bike to HPN and say, okay, do everything, do the suspension, right, right, do the twin arms, do the, uh, that takes longer. But it's, it's only the basic frame reinforcement. Five weeks later, it was on its way back. And then I took two weeks to really carefully reassemble the bike, document everything, clean everything, and then uh, it was in summer 2018, the bike hit the road, and I, uh, I can tell you, the in interesting thing for me also is, for all the HPNs I had written before, it was always a totally modified bike. Completely changed suspension, completely changed seating position and everything. This was the first time I was riding essentially the same bike and the only modification that had been done was an oil change everywhere and the frame reinforcement. Everything else was unchanged, even the carb adjustments. And I can tell you, the bike is much more stable. That is, you know, the GS, the same model as you have it, when you go with a pretty loaded bike in fast corners where the, the, the road is not exactly flat, you feel that the, 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 the rear end becomes a little bit wobbly. I think you feel, uh, you know what I mean, no? I do, I do. It's, it, it's not exactly that you get nervous, but you feel, okay, something is moving, perhaps I shouldn't go even faster than that. And this has completely disappeared now. I mean, I knew, uh, I, I have some roads around here where I exactly know, okay, if I take that road with that speed, it will a little bit, bend a little bit with the h band. this is completely gone. There's no more flex. Uh, same thing for the handlebar. With the standard GS, if the tire is a bit used, you can let go of the handlebar, but you shouldn't slap it, for example, because then it will provoke some, some shimming. That means the handlebar will start to, to vibrate. With the HPN, I can just hit the handlebar. It will make one movement and return to center. Wow. So calm. It's, it's absolutely insane how stable the bike has become with only a few sheets of steel welded onto the frame in the right place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so there's the... Incredible. Uh, there's it's the, incredible. I never experienced that before. So there's the... And for folks who aren't familiar with those uh, frame modifications, you, you'll know these better than me, but I know there's uh, some at the headstock, uh, at the, yeah, at the, the top of the frame, by the uh, uh, swing arm pivots, and, and where else? The, essentially, it's three areas, if I remember correctly. It's around the headstock, it's the swim, the swing arm, those C-shaped brackets. Mm -hmm. That's when you realize, uh, that's how you can easily recognize an HPN on a photo. You always look at the, the frame, it's the, the C-shaped uh, bracket. Mm -hmm. And there is something else on the rear end of the main frame where it splits to the left and right rear engine part. You know what I mean? I do. It's under the rear end of the gas tank. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's, there's, all, there's all, also some brackets. And I, I couldn't believe that only these few brackets in those few places would make the handling so much more stable. That's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, if you think about it, what, it's uh, six, seven pieces uh, of, of metal welded strategically on the frame, and what a difference. Absolutely. And, and this is the thing where I said, my God, why didn't I do that before? It's probably because <laughs> the guys from HPN, they don't do publicity for that on their, uh, on their website. They make the publicity, the only publicity that's there. I mean, people are coming there by themselves. They don't need publicity anymore. 
but it's it's for the fully modified bikes for the for the for the racing bikes and i wanted a stock bike still for two persons where i could still move uh, put on my standard luggage uh, the only other option I took was, for example, the mounting for the 43-liter tanks, if ever I'll buy something. So this is soldered, uh, this is welded to the, the front of the frame. If you do that afterwards, you can have you know, this with clamps that uh, the, the spool it on. But otherwise, it was really surprising for me. And I think I'm the only one who really has done only this modification with nothing else. That is unusual. Uh, and, 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 and then just say, wow. That's one of the things where I said, okay, I should have done it much, much earlier. Mm -hmm. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m. and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are Airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. Okay, as promised, William Plam is back with us this week. Our topic, Siebenrock Cylinder Kits, and you'll hear in our conversation, I had an occasion to install one of these. We'll get into my experiences, a bit of an anomaly when I was installing it, or maybe I was just stupid. I don't know. We'll find out. Here's William Plam. All right, William, so glad to be back with you. And our topic today is going to be uh, the Cybenrock kits, of which there are many. But before we dig into that, I just want to ask you a little bit off topic here. Uh, we're in the throes of winter. Uh, as we speak, I think a, um, a storm is headed your way on the East Coast. I wonder, you've been in North Carolina now, uh, gosh, four or five years, I guess it's been. Do you ever find yourself... Want wishing for the warm confines of, of California this time of year? You know, not really. Um, I, I, I like the change, honestly. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's nice. I mean, you, you, there's cool things you could do in the winters also, you know. I, I, I love the fall and, and the winter, and, you know, you just dress differently. I, I like it all. I don't really miss any, any part of that, honestly. Everybody talks about all oh, the weather and the weather, you know, but yeah, you know, it's, it, it kind of gets old too when it's just like, you know, 365 kind of t-shirt weather, you know, there's so. something to be said for the changing of the seasons and, and all that brings, I guess. Right. There is. Yeah. And then, and then my wife really likes it. She, she wishes we, we had more snow here. She really likes snow, you know, so she's nutty, but, um, so that anyway, that she's happy, then I'm happier too. <laughs> I understand how that goes. So yeah, I mentioned it's been um, 
Gosh, four, has it been five, about five years since you relocated? It, it's been five. It was five at Thanksgiving was five. Oh, wow. Okay. That's an easy to remember date, isn't it? It is. Yeah, indeed. And I, I we talked about this a little bit, I think, in one of our first uh, conversations. But uh, as you mentioned there, the, the weather and the changing of the seasons is something you like. But how, uh, now that you've been there, I guess it feels like home. What are some of the things, I guess, that uh, you find, you know, unique now living uh, on the East Coast? Hmm, that's a, that's a, a really good question. Well, there's like, there, there's actually a lot more. One, one thing, we, you know, we were on the coast in, in California, so you really only had like three directions you could go unless you had a boat. <laughs> yeah. And, and 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 he and there's so much more we can do, you know. It's like there, you know, we're we're quickly in Georgia, Tennessee. We got the huge state of North Carolina, Virginia. We've been up there a couple times and love it, you know. And so, you know, you have within a two-hour drive, you you you're in what seems like a different world, you know. And and uh, it's it's even even from the standpoint of, of the scenery, the geography, everything about it changes. So it makes it really interesting for us. There's so much more to experience, you know. And so we bought, last year, we bought a little Mercedes-Benz based, you know, Sprinter-based uh, little motorhome. Oh, yeah, yeah. And 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 we put our bicycles on the back, and we, we go out, and we just kind of go, like, a couple hours and camp someplace and, and you know, check that place out. And, and, and with, with, in California... When we wanted to go anywhere, like if you wanted to go up North California, you had to go through the Bay Area, big pain in the butt. You wanted to go to the mountains, you had to drive through the Central Valley, which isn't, you know, that great either. And anyway, it was just like you had to get out of where you were to get a change. It, and here, it's the change is is just down the road, you know. So I like it. Yeah, that's that's good. I'm glad I'm glad to know that. I mean, that was a big move. And I remember, you know, you mentioning the business environment is a little bit uh, more conducive uh, to what you all wanted to do on the East Coast. You're closer to the shipping uh, ports and yeah. things like that. There were some advantages there. So, yeah, I was just curious. I knew uh, it had been a while, uh, but I and I do seem to recall it was around the holidays. So, I, yeah, I was just curious, you know, make sure you're you're all settled in and liking the new digs. I love it. This is definitely home. And I, yeah, um, yeah, this is where we, this is where we're going to stay. All right. Okay. So as I mentioned, our topic today is uh, we're going to talk about the Cybernrock cylinder replacement kits, of which there are a number of these available. Right. Uh, I think four different ones, uh, or four different major variations. And let me set set it up this way. So uh, I have a '78 uh, R100S. And it was a low mile bike, and I was going through more oil than I should have, um, like a quart uh, every three or four hundred miles, which was kind of alarming. And <clears throat> what I did was I took the uh, heads off. Uh, I'm fortunate that Leo Goff is just a few hours uh, drive from me. I said, Leo, please have a look at these. Everybody knows uh, I've talked about this. I'm not a diagnostic mechanic. I could have probably looked at these and figured out what sort of there was an issue. But basically what he said was, look, you know, there's some pitting on the on the lining uh, on the board. That's probably because this bike sat for so many years. It's a low mile bike. 
and the iron bores uh, did have some pitting and some rust on there. Uh, since I've done this, I went back and looked at them. It's really superficial. There's nothing you can really, you know, run a fingernail over and feel it. Uh, but let's just talk about that first. So, you know, how can just a bike sitting like that get that kind of damage? Well, I, I, the, the piston rings are also um, a, a cast iron, essentially, and and then you have a, the solder wall so with with a cast iron, um, essentially molded into it, if you will, cast into it. And so, I mean, like anything, if you have moisture, uh, it's a it's it's going to cause rust, and and then when once that, especially like you guys observed, you know, since the bike had been sitting. Maybe you know, the, the, for up to a certain point, the oil film will protect this, the, those surfaces, right? But after a while, the the, the corrosion takes precedence, and uh, and it can can right there at that spot where the rings are are connecting or you know touching the cylinder wall. I think the rust can can start to occur, and in extreme cases, it'll weld itself together. Yeah. But even just in, in a slight bit, it it takes a little bit of that surface area away and it'll never quite seal. So every every time it passes that point where that rust occurred, a little bit of oil isn't, isn't sealing and that's where your, probably your consumption came from. Yeah. Have you seen an issue like that uh, over the years before, just from a bike sitting like that? Definitely. Yeah. I've taken apart a lot of old bikes and... Um, and uh, over the years, not necessarily even just uh, BMWs, but um, we've been sitting a long time, in, you know, it's varying degrees of damage. The worst one I ever had actually was uh, where I actually had to f- fashion a, a tool to press the piston out of the cylinder. Oh, you know? good grief. Yeah. And so, you know, the, it gets, the, and then, you know, the cylinder needed major replacement or repair but um yeah so he, he, there's varying degrees of how how ugly that can get yeah yeah so okay all right so we've established there was some damage uh to the cylinder walls uh also probably to the rings as well uh as you mentioned so you get to this point and really you've got a couple options one especially with the older iron bore cylinders is to send them off uh have them nickel nickel relined uh, get new pistons and new rings and go that route. That's it. That way you're keeping the original cylinder head, and that's a viable option. A lot of people have done that. I did that on an R90S uh, a number of years ago, uh, and it worked out fine. Uh, in this case, uh, when Leo looked at him, he said, look, you know, if this were my bike, I'd just order the Siebenrock uh, kit and be done with it. It's, you know, easy, less hassle. You have the parts in your hand in a week, and you can get on with your life uh, and do it that way. So that's what I did. Uh, I got the kit from you. Uh, full disclosure, I did buy the kit. You didn't give it to me. Uh, so, you know, we're not doing a product, uh, free product uh, assessment here. Uh, you gave me a couple bucks discount, which I appreciate, but I did buy the kit. Uh, and so first thing I want to talk about with this is for somebody who's looking to do this. In my case, I opted for the replacement kit, uh, which is basically uh, you just 
you're not changing the displacement. You're not really cha changing much of the horsepower or how uh, or the performance of the motor. You're just introducing new cylinders, new pistons, new rings, wrist pins, and things like that. There is it, it does mention there's a, maybe a slight uh, horsepower performance gain because you've got lighter pistons uh, and a lighter wrist pin. But on the, this replacement kit is basically a bolt-on kit. If, if, like in my case, you had some damage, didn't want to do the Nicosil line and, and, and that sort of stuff. And this is basically, if you've done a push rod tube seal replacement, this is pretty much close to doing that. There isn't really much more difference in that, is there? No, there's really not. It's pretty much the same scope of work. Yeah, it is. And so I got the kit and let's talk about the instructions on here. And I got a little bit confused when I went through the instructions. And this has since been rectified and, and remedied. Uh, but anyway, so I'm going through the instructions and it clearly noted, uh, put, uh, install the uh, large base O-ring uh, on the base of the cylinder. Now, you know, and I know, and most folks who are listening know that O-ring wasn't introduced until uh, 1980, I think it was, the 1980-year model. And that's just, there's a cut in the base of the cylinder head there that this o-ring uh, slips into and it acts it seals uh, things a little bit better i guess that was the reason for it right indeed okay yeah. all right so <clears throat> i'm looking at the instructions it says install the o-ring i'm thinking now wait a minute uh, i this didn't have an o-ring and i don't recall them being on the 78 year models but who am i to question the instructions and i had also along with the kit, uh, got a top-end reseal kit as well, so that had the push rod, tube seals, uh, gaskets, all that kind of stuff, the smaller O-rings, all the other things you need. But there weren't the large cylinder base O-rings. I just happened to have some uh, in my stash of parts, and I put them on. And what happened was one of the cylinders sealed fine. Uh, the right one did not. So I started the motor up and Subsequently, there was a nice puddle of oil on the garage floor, and I thought, oh, Lord, what did I do? Uh, I took, I pulled the cylinder head off. I looked, and that what happened was the O-ring that I incorrectly installed got the edges of it got trimmed off a little bit when I when, it, when the cylinder went up against the engine block. A small, a real thin circumference of that O-ring became displaced, and it stopped the cylinder from sealing against the engine block. So all I did, William, was I took, I removed that obstruction that was uh, the problem. I left the O-ring on there, sealed it back up, and it's fine. So let's just say here uh, on the front end, for a pre-80 bike, no O-ring. Let's make that clear. Uh, but as I mentioned to you, we looked at the instructions, and indeed it wasn't as clear maybe as, as it should have been. Is, is that a fair assessment? It, 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 that's more than fair. Essentially, w we uncovered uh, a problem in a way that the instructions that Siebenrock had didn't, on their website, didn't um, reflect the, that fact that you shouldn't use the O-ring on the earlier models. 
And so I brought that to, the, to their attention, and that's recently been corrected. So the, the correct instructions are now on their website and should be in the package and also on our website, too. That's all been updated. And essentially what it says is pre-81 um, models, the don't use the O-ring, but for manufacturing pro- um, processes, all of the cylinders have that that groove cut into it because it's just it makes more sense for them to use essentially the same cylinder and same machining process. So if you have a pre eighty one motor, even though you'll find it maybe has that O ring groove cut in it, bottom line is don't put the O ring on, as the instructions say. Even though it seems like there's a gee, there's a groove for it, ought to put the O ring in. You would think, but exactly. That's not the case. Okay. You want to just use a, a good quality silicone sealant all around the uh, base of the cylinder, taking special care not to put too much around those two top studs, very, very, very lightly, because the oil uh, comes through those top studs to lubricate the rocker arms. And so you, you want to rely essentially on those small O-rings to seal there. That's right. A little smear of silicone won't hurt if you're very sparing, but it shouldn't be enough to where when it compresses that it forces any of that into to potentially partially or entirely block that passage. That would be catastrophic. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'm, I'm sure you've come across this, and I know I have in my limited experience when I've done a, a push rod uh, seal replacement some people previous owners i'm sure this you've noticed this too you pull the cylinder head off and you can see the silicone gooped up in that oil passage and you have to kind of get in there and, and clean it out and thankfully it you know in my case it didn't do any damage but people can get a little overzealous with that indeed yep so that's just something to look at Okay, so before we move on to the kits, I just want to mention a couple things here. I kind of thought maybe we're a little bit humorous. So when I mentioned this to you uh, about the instructions uh, and thanks uh, on on the back end here again for contacting uh, Siebenrock and, and getting this sorted out. But what was funny was when you, you sent me uh, back, you know, sort of, the proper instructions. And when I first looked at it, it was clear that essentially what had been done was somebody went back and put in in blue font, you know, post 1980 only for the O-rings with the exclamation point or something. And I couldn't help but be reminded of when we had a president who changed the projection of a hurricane with the Sharpie marker and I, <laughs> I kind of thought about that, too. It was, I can imagine, like, oh, oh, okay, well, I guess it should need to say that here. Let's just put that in, in blue font. Uh, and, you know, everybody's uh, not the worst for it. Uh, and here's the instructions. But I kind of got a kick out of that. And in all fairness, I did go back and look at the corrected instructions and where everything is. And, it is in that blue font. That just hap- happened to be the way they did it. But I kind of got a kick out of that. The other thing you mentioned to me was, um, and this is something I've heard from a lot of folks uh, who I've interviewed over the years. Yeah, I'm painting a little bit of a uh, with a wide brush here using what you mentioned to me. But sometimes, apparently, the Germans are loath to admit mistakes. Is that is that true? Um, it's, it's 
it's I, I've noticed that from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's I, I don't know. Like I said, I've interviewed folks. I mean, anybody from Tom Cutter, Dwayne Ausherman, and uh, other guys who worked with uh, BMW. Uh, uh, over the years, and they said the, sort of the same thing, paraphrasing it. They're, they don't readily admit that. Uh, has that been your experience in, in some regards, too? I, I live with it every day. My wife's German. <laughs> Why do you think that is? And she's, and she's infallible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Why do you think that is? Just to, I, I don't want, I'm not trying, again, I'm not trying to stereotype or anything, but uh, again, you've been around BMW for a long time. You've probably seen this uh, on any other number of occasions, too. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I hate to, I hate to generalize any anybody. Exactly. It's just wrong, you know. But in, the, in, the, in, in some cases, uh, I don't know if it, if it has to do with just the, 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 the upbringing and um, the way the education system works and all that stuff that a higher level of perfection is expected in many ways. That's what makes some of the things that the Germans do so spectacular. And the flip side to that is that that is a norm that's expected. Yeah, that's okay. That's a good way of saying that. I'll take that answer. So back to our discussion at hand proper here and back to those O-rings. So uh, I've ridden the bike. I did the 500-mile break-in, um, changed the oil. Uh, no O-ring material came out of the oil pan. Uh, I, I checked the pan. It was fine. So apparently no worse for the wear with keeping the O-ring on there. And when I asked you about it, you said, look, you know, basically, if you're not having any problems, if the uh, motor's sealed, it's not leaking oil, and you're not noticing anything otherwise, just keep the O-ring on. No need to go back and, and pull it out. Yeah, I mean, if it ain't broke, don't fix it is, is, is a good way of looking at that. Essentially what the deal is, is that the later model um, engine block, I think has a slight chamfer to facilitate that oil or that, that O-ring passing over that, that, the ledge, so to speak, uh, the edge. And so, like on that one cylinder, how you described it, sort of like sheared off yeah. uh, portion of the O-ring. That's that that's exactly the preferred way of seeing it. It just like sheared that off. So maybe on the other side, you just got lucky and it's and it slipped through, you know. And if it did, and it's sitting in there and it didn't shear and it's sealing, then there's no, it's not doing any harm. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. there's no reason to necessarily take it apart. Because it is possible that for it, especially if you did put a little smear of silicone on there, whatever, that acted as a lubricant, and it just kind of went right past that edge and didn't damage the O-ring at all, okay, no problem, no yeah. harm, no foul. Yep. Okay, good enough. So another thing I noticed on uh, on this kit was uh, the wrist pins, and I think that's the case uh, with all of these uh, Siebenrock kits, is the wrist pin has the snap ring versus the circlip. So that's something right. that's a little bit different. Now, I can't recall, I want to say uh, the R, the 78 RS, and uh, would it have originally had a circlip on the wrist pin? I can't remember now. Yes, it, the, I think all of the R100 motors, basically, that's where they all went with that external 
or clip. Okay. And the reason... Uh, fill or not. Okay. And then the reason for going to this, what I'm calling the snap ring, the C-shaped C snap ring, uh, it, it basically allows you to get a lighter wrist pin in there. Is that right? That would be the, probably the reason for doing so. Because it is, at the end of the day, probably close to half an inch shorter or maybe, you know, three-eighths three shorter than, the, than, than the, the type with the external clip, right? So that's a, a little bit of material savings and weight savings. Okay, and so with this replacement kit, again, uh, I wasn't, you know, doing the power-up or the 1070. I wasn't really going for any extra horsepower or performance. This was just to replace uh, some damaged goods. Uh, so as far as the cylinder goes and the, the piston and the rings uh, that are supplied with the kit, what do you know about those uh, as far as how, how would those differ? Maybe the piston is a little different from an OEM original one. And as far as the cylinder head uh, being made, they're manufacturing those new somewhere, I suppose, right? Yeah, the cylinders are... Um, uh the best of my knowledge, made by Ghilardoni in Italy, and that's actually an OEM supplier to BMW. You'll see, if you ever take apart a R1100, 1150, or whatever, they they made those cylinders also. They may may even still making them today. I haven't had to take apart a real modern motor for any reason, but I know that they're an OEM supplier. And same with the, the piston rings are the highest quality. They're, they're a company called Goethe. And they make they make piston rings really fit. they're like the the standard in in um, high end uh, piston rings in the automotive industry for German and other European cars. So top top quality components throughout. And the and as I mentioned, the pistons. I guess I now I didn't weigh them or anything like that. But supposedly they're also a little bit lighter. Of course, they're balanced and things like that. I would imagine. Um, but you've just got a little bit lighter weight, less spinning mass that's going to apparently allow the motor to rev up a little bit quicker? Yeah, I think they're they're a bit lighter. And they've also got like a sort of a, you might have noticed on the piston, they have like a Teflon sort of coating on the side, of, mm -hmm. which helps with redu reduction in friction um, and, and uh, easier on the cylinder walls. I, I think that's a, a nice feature as well. Yeah. And as I mentioned, uh, just it, the installation on this is pretty straightforward. If you've done a push rod tube seal job, this is really akin uh, to doing that. Uh, and it's one of those jobs that, you know, in this case, you know, I was happy that there was a good sort of bolt on option and I wasn't having to worry about sending this off somewhere and waiting, you know, six to eight weeks uh, to get the cylinders relined or something like that. This is basically a bolt-on kit. Uh, that's, again, uh, I use the replacement kit, but there are a couple other different offerings out there. Uh, and let's talk about a few of those and where those are applicable. So the yeah. uh, uh, another one here is the 860 power kit, and that's for the R45 and the R65. And I guess we should mention here, it go it, it doesn't go without saying those are not two four seven engines. Those are two four eights, I believe. So essentially, what you're doing here, you're taking a four fifty or a six fifty uh, with the shorter stroke, 
and installing the 860 power kit. Is that a general correct synopsis there? Yeah, basically what you're doing is it's uh, it's the same piston as the 1000cc, uh, I think it's 97 millimeter, and you um, putting that onto the 650. So with that bore of the th- of the R100 bore basically and the shorter stroke of the R65 or R45 due to the different crankshaft arrangement, um, you get uh, mathematically approximately 860 cc displacement. And it makes a huge difference on those bikes because it really uh, adds a tremendous amount of, uh, nearly doubles the torque and adds a substantial amount of uh, horsepower increase. So it, it changes the rather timid R65 motor into really amazingly uh, powerful and flexible Motor. Yeah, that sound. That's uh, aside from sort of the big bore kit, which we'll talk about. Uh, this sounds like it's probably one of the more dramatic sort of performance increases one could do with this kit. Yeah, it's it, it, it's quite good. Have you ridden one with it? Oh, absolutely, several times. Yeah, um, both yeah in, in Germany and and here in the states, and I've installed a few. Um, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, boy, I can imagine, you know, like a nice, uh, a red R65 LS, uh, and then popping one of those kits in there, and boy, those bikes are already pretty flickable and fun to ride uh, straight out of the out of the factory, uh, but you add this extra displacement and horsepower, uh, I'm sure that really makes for a, for a fun bike. Indeed, and the CU still retain the, the narrow width of the of the motor which is real nice too so yeah it's it's definitely a, a, a nice uh, upgrade one thing i wanted to mention too about yeah. these kits is that what we're running into now increasingly is availability of oversized pistons hmm. they're getting increasingly hard to get i mean it might be that that they uh Mala goes ahead and makes another batch of them or whatever, but our suppliers are out of a lot of them. So if you have like a 750 or 800 and you want wanted to go with like a first or second oversized piston, they're sometimes can be very hard to get. And then, so that's another good option for just putting the seam rock kit on there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So yeah, you're, you want to read, you've had, yeah. By the time you, by the time, if you can even get them, if by the time you get those pistons and then add in the machining, uh, costs of getting getting the, the oversized and all that stuff. You come up to around the, you know the, in the same order of magnitude of cost. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I never thought about that consideration. That's good to know. Uh, okay. The next one then is the power kit for R seventy five, R eighty, and R ninety. Uh, so we're looking at uh, well, in the R seventy five and the R ninety, we're looking at the slash six series of bikes, and then the R80 uh, would also, I guess, be a, a slash seven series, and then a R80, uh, maybe similar to what I have, uh, a later monolever like R80 RT, or just a straight R80, uh, of which there weren't a whole lot of those uh, that came into the States anyway. But again, uh, what you're doing here is taking the smaller displacement motor or cylinder head there and then this kit just gets you up to a thousand cc's uh on those particular bikes uh on on those kits again uh you 
you're getting a little bit of a performance upgrade. Is it as noticeable as uh, what we were talking about with the R65, maybe? Probably not. The R65 is, is pretty dramatic to change. Um, when you go from, from an R80 to, to the 1000 kit, uh, it, it, you definitely notice a big difference and you'd be happy with the performance increase. But the, the, the level of, of difference on that R65, uh, and especially on an R45, is, is quite remarkable. Yeah, and I guess for somebody who's got uh, one of these bikes in that range of 75 and 80 or an R90, uh, this, you're probably going to be, I mean, let's, let me just put it this way. There's two sorts of camps here. One, somebody like me, you had some damage, you needed to replace it regardless. Secondarily, there's guys who just like to find all the little things that they can do to get a little more performance and horsepower. So that second tier or that second camp, this is going to be something uh, where, okay, you don't have to, you know, there is a note, you're not having to do a whole lot of um, other things necessarily uh, to get that additional horsepower. Again, this is just a bolt-on kit. Have, have, have you ridden, again, have you ridden maybe say like an R80, uh, a mono lever with the 1,000cc kit on it? Oh, absolutely! I have one. I have oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And um, we actually have. Um, we'll be we'll be doing a video on on an installation on the thousand cc kit here in the next few months. Oh, good. I actually have a. I actually have a R eighty GS a para a para lever, you know ninety one on its way over from Germany right now, and we're gonna pop a kit in that one. Oh, good. But yeah, I have an R eighty mono lever. That's one of my personal favorite machines that I have. And I've got, that, I've had the 1000 CC kit on there for years. And uh, yeah, it's, it's beautiful bike to ride. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I've, I still have uh, my R80 RTs from 94 and I, I can tell it's a little thin uh, compared to, you know, if I'm even riding an older uh, R100 RS or just my straight R100S, you can tell the power's a little thin and it leaves a little bit to be desired. You don't have that ability to overtake. And, you know, sometimes it seems like with that R80, you've got to slam it down into a higher gear uh, if you wanted to make a move or something like that. But again, at the same time, the R80 uh, motor, some people will say is a little bit more uh, balanced to some degree, a little bit uh, lighter feel. So, it's again one of those things. You look at it. Well, maybe I need to replace this. The motor's tired. I want to update things. Or, uh, in your case, you're just upgrading the motorcycle uh, to the best specifications you can. So, that's that. On the big bore kit, the 1070. That's a completely different ball game. So, tell me about that. Right. So on the on, on that, it's a, you get a different uh, piston rod as as well. And essentially, what that does is it, and it has a completely different, uh, much lighter piston. It has a lot shorter skirt on it, and the um, the, the uh, connecting rod is up higher in the in the piston, just below the rings than it would than on the piston, the original piston. So it's a, a lot less weight on the piston, 
and then these the rods are needed because of the different location of the piston um, connecting rod, or it, I'm sorry, the um, wrist pin in relationship to the to the crank journal. It's a, a longer um, rod, so the, the, it's it's pretty slick. And then they basically take the same cylinder as the other one, but bore it out even larger to facilitate the bigger piston. And then there's a kit available with the camshaft or one without the camshaft. You can uh, decide if you want to also change to a sport camshaft for the sort of ultimate additional performance. And then there's also two different versions of the connecting rod. There's a 151-millimeter rod, and there's a 151.5-millimeter. So the slightly longer rod gives you a little bit higher compression. And so that's great for ultimately high performance applications, you know, as far as you can go with one of these things. And uh, it may require, unless you're running race gas, uh, that you dual plug with the longer rod. But our experience has been with the 151 rods, if you're just running super or wherever possible, ethanol-3 free fuel, best quality you can get, runs like a top without having to dual plug. And um, so, yeah, that's that's it's a, quite a bit more cost involved, but there's also you know more components you're getting in the kit, and it's a very very powerful change that you get with that versus stock. Now I mentioned uh, the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now I mentioned uh, for these other ones we were talking about uh, the the installation and procedure is not terribly difficult for a. Uh, a well-seasoned home mechanic like myself, when you're talking about changing the camshaft, I imagine that's a little bit of a different ballgame. You know, to change the camshaft, it really, there, there, there's maybe some some sort of cheat workarounds you can do, but more or less, you need to take the motor out of the out, and uh, your your the, the camshaft goes into the. Um, uh, the oil pump drive, so you may be able to slip that in, but that's not always the case. And you obviously have to take the uh, the lifters out, and then the whole front end of the motor comes out with the timing chain, and then the timing cover, and then you have to remove the, the camshaft. I mean, it's it's a lot more involved. It's not that difficult, really, but it's uh, it's probably best to um, take the gearbox out and. When you're going that far with it, make sure that the oil pump's good. All that stuff go in there and remove this. Requires removing the uh, the gearbox, the clutch, the flywheel, and then the whole front end. You could do it with the motor still in the frame. You totally could, or you could pull the motor out and work on on the bench. Either way, but it's quite a bit of disassembly to change the camshaft. Yeah, yeah. Our end. And, and having never done that job, I would imagine <clears throat> uh, when you're installing a camshaft, you're, there's going to be some clearances and measurements and specs you're going to have to pay special attention to. Yeah, it's pretty much just going to be, you know, as long as nothing's worn or anything, which probably won't be the case, it should be just a more or less direct replacement. Oh, really? But nope. you do, yeah, you, but you do have to, there's no real... The only thing you do have to to uh, be careful about is when you put the the camshaft sprocket onto the um, cam, 
there is some, some clearance issues there that you have to deal with. Um, it's all pretty much described in the manual, but the, the, on the front cam bearing, there needs to be some space in there. I think it's a tenth of a millimeter, uh, if I remember correctly. But you have to look in the manual. Don't take my word for it. And then um, that's just done by when you, you need a press. You need you need to have a hydraulic press at your disposal. Um, so you do need some some slightly more advanced workshop tools at your disposal to do that job. All right, good to know. And of course, all these kits are available for sale at uh, boxer2valve.com. We encourage everybody to check that out if you're thinking about making an improvement or like it was in my case, replacing some uh, damaged uh, components, boxer2valve.com, the place to go. William, thanks for the time. As always, we'll catch up with you soon. Right on, thank you so much. Nice talking to you. As always, a great visit with William. We'll look forward to catching up with him again soon. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is a long episode. We're making up for some lost time, and we've got another long segment with York Howahead. So as noted, maybe another cup of coffee, crack another beer. Here's our final segment with York. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about, uh, as long as you've had this motorcycle, you've done a lot of modifications, some repairs to it, of course, over the years and this is modifications mostly mostly repairs actually yeah. yeah and this is a good time to bring up the website uh that you've created and and let me say uh i was um tipped off uh, about you i should say reminded would be a better way uh a listener oh. a listener had suggested uh i or i can't remember i want to say somebody suggested i contact you about uh appearing on the program and when i looked up your website um, I was familiar with it because it had come up uh, before on searches for you know any oh. number of repairs or modifications or something. If you're typing in R80GS, you know whether it's a you know, valve adjustment or whatever it might have been. Uh -huh. I can remember your website coming up a few times, uh, and so let's talk about that a little bit. First off, oh, yeah. tell me I the tell me what the title. Tell me the name of the website and <laughs> what it means. Yeah. What is it? Um, it's Schweizerschrauber.ch, uh, which is actually, um, yeah, it was not intentionally. That was a pseudo I, I used on some other website. In the beginning, that website was, was more a hobby project. I, I started building this up around 1990, if no, not 1990, sorry, in the early 2000, if I remember correctly. Uh, essentially as a kind of documenting things for me, but also making it available for others. And uh, first I had lots of notes written on paper and I said, hey, there's this internet thing, why not just publish it on there? And a friend of mine who did professional web hosting said, okay, I'll give you uh, some space on my servers. And uh, it was hosted like that on, on some subdomain uh, somewhere. Then sometimes we had problems with the, the site being unavailable and server maintenance and whatever. And did, one day I decided, okay, let's let's buy my own. Uh, I will buy my own website here. And I was looking for a domain. I said, okay, let's do something with motorcycle related, but I don't want to make it the RATGS page or whatever. And so I said, okay, Schweizer Schrauber is one of the pseudos I was using. Actually, it's an it's an yeah, pseudo I'm still using on eBay, I think. Uh, and this essentially means rancher from Switzerland. Oh, okay. 
I, I tried to translate that. I, I didn't quite get it, but uh, okay, that's perfect. Yeah. It makes sense. And it's let not, me just interject. I'm not at all a trained mechanic or uh, whatever, but it's kind of the wrenching guy from Switzerland. Yes, uh, a hobbyist mechanic like many of us are. And let me just interject yeah. and say here for folks listening, I will put a link in the uh, About section of the podcast. Uh, I don't think people are going to be able to get that spelling and be able to type that in no. right away. <laughs> so yeah. so we'll, we'll link to that, uh, and folks can go check it out that way. Okay, so we got the impetus for uh, the website. Um, let's talk about some of the things that are on there. I know we could spend all day sort of talking about yeah, a lot, yeah. lot of the different modifications and things you, you've done there. But uh, you mentioned a couple things that you uh, wanted to discuss uh, in our conversation today that are on that website. Yep. For example, uh, the, the, the website as such, it's my private page. Huh? It's uh, it's the kind of, uh, it's not necessarily the business because I also founded a business around the motorcycle stuff later on. But it has things about, for example, my electronic stuff, some of the, the science stuff. I'm a scientist by training. And uh, some of that is on there. And uh, also for the motorcycles, some First of all, it started as a log, kind of what do I do for maintenance, for example, valve maintenance for an area that's easy to find. But if you go into things like uh, how do I do a timing chain replacement, that gets a little bit more difficult. So for example, revising the gearbox. And whenever we, we did maintenance like that together with, with friends, uh, I took lots of photos. Just, okay, let me write that together so if I ever need it, I can find it. For example, if you look at the BMW workshop menu, they always refer to special tool 123.4. And if you don't have the tool, you need to improvise. So I said, okay, let's measure what is this tool and put that information on the website. Same as, for example, parts numbers or even parts prices. And so the, so the first started off with uh, as documentation for myself and for others. And uh, other things were then, for example, about the trips. Are you still there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm listening. Yes. Okay. Sorry. It, 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 it was silent. Okay. Yeah. Other things are, for example, the, the motorcycle trips. By far, not everything is on there, but uh, some of the best of are in uh, on there. Are many other trips that we done with friends, but sometimes I think, okay, I, why should I invest all the time for the pictures when I read relatively few feedback on that? Yeah. Uh, but also other topics, for example, is yeah, gearbox overhaul, uh, head overhaul, engine disassembly, some electrical stuff. I see that many people have trouble with the electrics on the bike or don't know where the electrons go. I'm pretty much at ease with, with that. I, I was always more attracted actually by the mechanics, uh, by, sorry, by the electronics than by the mechanics. And for example, that's also how I developed some some parts. For example, the the tail light. Yeah, tell me about that. Coming, coming back from a trip in uh, Tuscany in northern Italy, I remember we took the ride back. We started late evening, so came home uh, somewhere in the middle of the night, and I got very often cars signaling behind me, hey, your, ta your, your taillight isn't working. Kind of, they only had my reflective license plate. Mm-hmm didn't see me because the, the taillight was dropping whenever I was stopping and I said, okay, what's the problem wrong with the taillight? Look at it and you see the taillight 
maybe not as strong and you slap the headlight and it would come on uh, sorry the taillight i don't know if you know the symptoms but that's because the taillight of the gs is mounted in a lot of rubber suspensions it is that's right it's, it's, it's pretty elastic and i found at least on my bike this movement of the taillight caused some friction between the lamp socket and its holder so that there was an oxidized layer between it, which would then cut out the headlight. It's not that the filament of the bulb was burned. Mm -hmm. It was just that the, the headlight didn't work anymore, loss of contact. So you take out some paper, you scrap it, you put it in again, and then 100 kilometer later it starts again. And I said, okay, this <laughs> is getting unnerving, especially <laughs> since this is my only taillight. Yeah. You know, the taillight of the GS is not exactly the brightest bulb. And it's very small, yeah. Exactly. And that's when I said, okay, let me do something. And I looked around on the internet, looked on some data sheets, and I found taillight LEDs and said, okay, let's build something. Developed then my, uh, my own taillight. First of all, it was only for me. And then some people saw it at the motorcycle meeting. And then I started getting requests, kind of, I want your taillight. I said, it's only, I have only one of those. It's handmade. I said, but I want this taillight, I'm going to pay for it, and you will even get Nürnberger Lebkuchen, which is a special sweet uh, kind of special cake from uh, yeah, southern Germany. Oh, so they went to your hey. sweet tooth right away. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's when I said, okay, if you're using abusive force like that... <laughs> I'm giving in. You'll get it. And then I start. And then I went on one of the motorcycle forums. I, I asked, okay, um, I'm probably going to build this on the with a professional PCB. Would someone else be interested in mm -hmm. it? And suddenly I had uh, about 50 firm orders placed. I said, okay, let's start it. So I, I had, to, I developed the PCB, had it made as usual in China, assembled the thing here at home and ship them. And people were satisfied with it. Uh, the problem is, of course, you're modifying a part of an CE-approved taillight. That means essentially you're losing the validity and traffic. I mean, it, it's illegal to, to ride around with something like that. But then we had, uh, I have even reports for, for people who said, okay, I presented it to my technical expertise, the TÜV in Germany. Mm -hmm. And the engineer noticed there was something different. And he said, I like it because it's uh, it's better than the original. Can you show it for me to me? And I really have people telling me that the engineers were surprised uh, about the execution of the thing, and uh, yeah, they like it. Wow! And then from there on, it started again. Word of mouth, kind of. Can you do this for the slash seven? And then the others, can you do this for the slash five slash six tail light? And essentially, I have a, I have now all the three tail light uh, types in uh, and the. I mean, they are selling and people are riding around with it and telling me it's safer. So I like that better when I can kind of make uh, other people's lives somewhat safer. And I never have this trouble again with uh, the, the taillight dropping out. So two That's the most important thing. And so it was, it was really born from necessity where I said, That's right. I don't want to, 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 to have this trouble with the taillight. That's the old saying, uh, your uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Um, exactly right. So I've got two follow-up questions uh, there. So the first yeah. first one is, you're so it's you're still selling those, and folks can buy them, correct? 
Yeah. All right. And they'll exactly. be able to find that information on your website, which we'll link to. Uh, exactly. If you're right on the homepage, you have this section that says electronic accessories for sales. That is uh, where you find it. Perfect. The second thing uh, is more of an observation and comment. And you mentioned the TUV uh, or the tube, I guess. That, uh, the tube, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the shorthand. The technical control for modifications that's in, right. in Germany. Yeah. So for those of us in the United States, that's a foreign concept. So. Uh, we are free to modify and make our cars okay. and motorcycles very unsafe with little oversight here, uh, which is okay. a, which is a mixed bag. But um, my and I've heard I've interviewed other folks uh, from Europe and elsewhere who've said in so many words, customization is sort of an American. Thing. When they think of custom cars and motorcycles, they think of America, America because we just don't have that oversight. But what I wanted to yeah. say here was that the inspector at TUV at the Tuve was taken by your modification, uh, interested in it, and impressed with it yeah. really says something, doesn't it? I think so. Because uh, you may, of course, stumble upon someone who says, oh, I absolutely don't like it. This is non-stock. You have to revert. Right. But otherwise, if they are somewhat technically interested and they understand what this does, they will immediately realize it's better than the original one. Mm -hmm. It's more durable, certainly, and you will never have a burnt out uh, bulb again. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I don't just out of cue, since we're talking about this here in the States, uh, I think, yeah. and I don't even know if they're still made. I think I have one. It was called a Beacon, uh, is the model or the manufacturer that uh, we have or that somebody was distributing here in the United States. I think I have one on my uh, first generation GS. But the LED light on the uh -huh. back, definitely a nice upgrade, uh, brighter, uh, yeah. just, and like you say, trouble free. Um, so you mentioned, uh, uh -huh. you mentioned that sort of the reason for the taillight was you were traveling. Uh, and exactly. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, you have some extensive uh, posts on your website uh, about your travels. What I want to ask mm -hmm. you, what I want to ask you first is, and everybody approaches this a little bit differently. I know I have my sort of uh, protocol and checklist I do uh, mm -hmm. pre-travel. Uh, what's, what's your sort of philosophy uh, about getting, getting your motorcycle ready before you go? So aside from, you know, the oil's changed and those kind of things, do you carry a lot of uh -huh. spare parts? Do you carry a lot of tools? Or do you try to make sure the bike is as well prepared on the front end so maybe you're not the kind of guy that has a spare starter relay and an alternator and a torque wrench? <laughs> Actually, it's both. Okay. Um, okay. No, I, I don't carry a spar alternator. But, okay. Uh, for example, in our first Tunisia trip in 2007, we had two airheads in the in the trip. That means we could take half of the spare parts because it's highly improbable that you you'll have failures on both ends. Mm -hmm. uh, generally. I try to maintain my bikes always in a state where I can essentially uh, hop on it tomorrow and go for a towel. I mean, I, uh, okay, I would still check the air pressure once more, but otherwise I try to maintain the bike in a state where it's always ready to be used. And for example, when I switch from the GS to the K100, which is the second bike I have, uh, 
I always have the bags on the two bikes. I always have the basic tools on the bikes. I always have some, uh, for example, the, the stock tool and some basic repair items like uh, something to inflate the tires if I get a flat tire, um, spark plugs for the GS, the diode board for both bikes, spare cables for the, for the clutch and for the gas, for example, I have them glued a stick into the, the luggage boxes. Okay. So everything is, everything is hidden away. For example, it's long time ago that I swapped this, the, the huge block of the 24A uh, ampere hour battery against the smaller one. It's an 18AH battery, which is about half the size of the original one. So that leaves space besides the battery where I now have a small box inside where I have spare parts that I almost never need, but I like to have them. I kind think, of spare yeah. lamps, diode board, uh, I think I even have an ignition module somewhere in there. And so this is always on the bike because it's specific to this one bike. And I'm pretty sure at the moment I have it, I never need it. That I was just going to say, isn't that yeah, always exactly. the, always the case? If you've packed it in preparation and you have it, you're not going to need it. But the number of times I could use my tools to help other people that are right. stuck somewhere with, with their bikes, for example, uh, yeah, alternators uh, or whatever. Uh, no, the alternator is not something for, that I carry around. But whenever we have this, this, for example, our HPN meeting, there will always be someone with an alternator defect. So, <laughs> so it's, <laughs> ah, it's this time of the year again, and who has got the spare alternator? So then we can just swap it, and later on the person will send this one back. It's the same, for example, for the maintenance. Whenever I do maintenance on the bike, I try to use the standard tool set that's on the bike. Mm -hmm. Because then I can see what are eventually the things I cannot do with the standard tool set. Typical thing on the paralever is if you never would need to remove the paralever rod, you will need a 15 millimeter wrench. And that's not part of the standard tool set. That's right. That's one of the, the, those things where you realize, ah, okay, this is not standard. Mm -hmm. Or for, uh, then I'm asking myself, okay, should I pack that tool or could I eventually get this at the gas station mm -hmm. or workshop or something easily? Which is not uh, no longer the case for the spare parts because those bikes are more than 30 years old. And if you go into the BMW dealership today, they would say, oh, this one, yeah, we'll have to order it. Can you come back next week? I don't want to happen that in holidays. Yeah. I want to add that you bring up you bring up a good point there. Um, I didn't have this on our question uh, sheet, but mm -hmm. uh, but I'm curious. You mentioned spare parts and, and dealers, and uh, you know today buying motorcycle parts. We live in a, a small global community. I think now. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. I'm constantly ordering parts from Germany. I buy from Moto Bands in the UK. Uh, I mm -hmm. or, I order from. Uh, sellers on eBay, uh, all over the world. So the accessibility for us is, is good. And I think it's one of the things that that's helped the interest in the airheads, uh, stay, uh, so strong over the years. Absolutely. That absolutely. being said, also, yeah, that being together with internet, I mean, it's yeah. an information exchange that is so easy. I mean, think back to 1990, you had the BMW dealership register. Mm-hmm. And when you showed up three years later, you could you could find that the dealership had been closed. Yeah, yeah. Ah, it's no longer in the city. I'm sorry. So is there yeah, today's 
become so it's become so easy. Is there a uh, where you are either in Switzerland or nearby? Is there a shop, an airhead specialist, uh, somebody who carries parts? Uh, or some a go-to supplier or something that that you frequent on a regular basis still? Uh, no, not not frequent, not on a regular basis. Generally, when I, for example, when I buy spares, the usual things for maintenance like oil filters and so on, mm-hmm. I try to buy them in bulk packages, kind of uh, ten oil filters and uh, ten uh, yeah valve covers, uh, valve cover seals and whatever. Um, but I think we have one or two pretty well sorted dealerships here in Switzerland, and then of course in Germany you have some uh, several.s Do the dealers do the dealers there still work on airheads or for so somebody? Yeah, but un- usually you have to yeah, but usually you have to order in advance. I it's see. Kind of uh, okay. If I know what I need, then I just place the order. For example, for some cables, current parts, they may have them in stock. But would a, te- again, would a tech- dealerships around here, they changed also. They're, they're, you have problems here finding the old mechanics. I mean, old in the sense they still know the airheads. Yes. But today there's the tendency, if you come with an airhead to a dealership, it's more in the kind of, ah, this is an old bike. Yeah, let the apprentice deal with that. <laughs> and I don't want an apprentice <laughs> no. mechatronician uh, wrench on my airhead, which is actually also one of the reasons why I started wrenching myself. Uh, that's right. That's it was right. kind of... Uh, I actually started wrenching when I came to Switzerland because the, I bought the bike at the time back in Germany, moved it over here to Switzerland, and then I said, okay, it's 10 years anniversary of the bike. I'll get you an, uh, uh, a BMW service. And then I saw the bill. <laughs> <laughs> and then the guy grinned to me and said, yeah, we did the standard service. And uh, yeah, you may eventually want to change the timing chain too. I said, okay, okay, how much uh, would that eventually cost? And then he said, okay, uh, I don't remember exactly, but it was something like 600 to 1,000 francs. Yeah. Oops, okay, you just motivated to me to (laughs) wrench all by myself. That's right. I mean, the guy, uh, we still had a great contact until the guy went into retirement. And he really realized, okay, I like wrenching. I can apparently do it somewhat without breaking too much. And he was really the one guy at the dealership where I could go to and whenever I had a question or what, he, he could, uh, we, we, we could uh, talk with each other. And it was the kind of guy when I had a real go off, uh, get off in, what is it, 2017, mm-hmm. I had a high sider where I wanted to measure the frame. And they said, if you come on Saturday morning, I'll get you the tool to measure the frame, which is quite huge. If you bring it back on Monday, we don't need it that urgently. So uh, we did that also, uh, quite nice connections in, in, uh, in that sense. And it, it really, there is some liaison, some connection between the airhead aficionados that you don't find with the more modern bikes. I agree, I agree. It, it, it's strange, it's fascinating, and yeah, fascinating. I uh, yeah, I have to, to side Spock here. I want to ask you along those lines. So tell me, this this is a constant line of conversation uh, among clubs, airhead clubs, uh, or riders who, who get together amongst themselves, is uh-huh. what's going to happen with the next generation of riders who will be riding uh-huh. airheads, you know, 20, 30 years from now. 
you know, will they be uh, like a, a slash two uh, and still have a lot of appeal uh, or what's going to happen? So at that I mentioned that to say, what is the sort of airhead scene among riders your age? And then are you seeing younger folks, uh, younger riders em embrace these bikes there? Good question. When I look at the, the people that I meet, we're pretty much all of the same age, something uh, 50 to 60-ish, mm -hmm. yep. some, some 70. So it's the same old generation. We have some of the somewhat younger people that are getting in there, 35-ish, uh, um, but not that many. I, have, I see many people watching those bikes where uh, you have the, uh, the um, how do you call it, the butcher down bikes, essentially, kind of, ah, uh, let's make it brown with a brown seat. Right. Call it a classic bike and try to sell it to an ex for an extremely high price. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous, yeah. attractive to me. <laughs> no, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I sometimes see kind of a, a trimmed down slash, uh, uh, yeah. A mutilated slash seven for thirty thousand francs or whatever. Yeah, I can just change my shake my head. Yeah, There's nothing to do with it. Unrideable, and yeah, it's mostly elder people. But some of the youngest seem to be get in there. I have no idea how this will look like in thirty years. Huh? Yeah, uh, you know, and let me just say, I I don't want to. Uh, I'm not critical of the cafe racer scene, uh, if we want to call yeah. it that. Cafe racer, be because that that's. Yeah, because, the, and I've mentioned this a lot of times, that's real similar to uh, a fad or a phase of motorcycling that went on here in the 70s, uh, like chopper bikes, when people were putting yeah, exactly. the long front ends on them and, you know, back in the 70s. And that was just something of the era that people did. I'm not terribly critical about yeah. it. It doesn't mean I would want one. Uh, or I would do yeah. that to a motorcycle, but I understand the personalization and the style yeah. and, and the appeal there. But the thing that kills some, me... Some of the technical realizations are indeed nicely made. I mean, yes. with the modern electronics, you can hide lots of things. That's, that, that's something where I say, okay, nicely done. Yes, exactly. Then again, try to ride this bike in rain. <laughs> How, will it look after three How will you look after three kilometers? Yeah. Are you still having some protection from weather? No, we only ride in nice weather. Yeah, but okay. I think... The thing that, that really puzzles you and me both, and you, you said it so eloquently, is then you see a $30,000 price tag on it and think, what the hell is going on here? Exactly. This, it, it, the comma has been shifted here. There's, there's something that's not, that's not right. Exactly. Yeah. All right, uh, York. So I want to get you out of here on a few questions. Now, it's been a while since I've gone down this sort of uh, list of, of uh, interview questions with folks, so I'm glad to get back into it today. The first one here yeah. is first one here is going to be your four favorite airheads. Now I think we can ah, safely yeah. we, we can yeah. we can safely say uh, the Paralever R80GS is on the list. Uh, so let, let's knock that off and let me maybe rephrase this uh, or give you the option here to say either your three favorites or conversely, if you could go out and buy three other airheads to put in your garage, maybe what might those be? I used to have for a while a R100R. No, actually, it was not an, an RT. It was a TAC. The TAC is the, police bike. the BMW's name for the Touring Integral Cockpit, which is the RT cockpit, but it's the police bike. Yep. So the difference between the RT and the police bike was, for example, the rear drum brake 
and also the engine power. I think it was the 67 horsepower R100 engine, but uh, with the RT fairing. This is a bike I loved it. I rode it for quite a while. I found it even more punchy in in, in terms of torque than the uh, than the the GS. Of course, it's a 1000. I had people riding with me saying, "Wow, for a, for an old R100, this pulls mighty well," and I was too up fully loaded. So. I um, loved that bike, but I finally gave it away. I sold it because uh, I used it more and more as a commuter bike, and I found the brakes were absolutely not up to standard. Mm-hmm. Okay. And before I start now modifying it all over and having yet another boxer, I switched it against the, against the K. But otherwise, to, to come back to the, the two valve boxes, so of course, it's the GS, the parallel, my model year, so 90. R80 or 100 is there, it doesn't matter, it has to be white. Probably the RT, maybe also the parallel, uh, uh, no, sorry, the monolever RT, the, the later models. I would probably add to the list an R80 ST for its absolutely phenomenal, incredible handling. I rode this bike for three days, bringing it back from northern Germany to Switzerland for a friend of mine, for a colleague from work, and it were three, day, three days of just broad grinning in my face. <laughs> bike has such an incredible handling. I'd probably take it in red then, otherwise pretty much stock. And the initially mentioned R75-5. Yeah. I just love these yeah. instruments. I love the overall look. I love the railing on the on the rear seat. It's, yeah. Would you go, would you go the Nürburgring green again green. on the Slash 5? And, yes. and a big tank? Does or it have any other valid colors? <laughs> Are there any colors you can imagine this bike in? I mean, of course, black. Black, but, uh, yeah. You know. No, and uh, I, I prefer the the large tank with the knee pads uh, of that era myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. You, you know, Jorg, you mentioned uh, that the ST, um, universally, that bike comes up always as a phenomenal handling motorcycle. Uh, anybody Absolutely, who's anybody yeah. who's ridden one has those exact same comments so uh if if you're out there listening and wondering wanting to get into an airhead or maybe thinking about buying another one that really seems like yeah that really seems like a good model okay next one as stock as possible yes i agree i agree uh okay next one here for you Jorg. um you dip you've done a lot of traveling uh you've also done a lot of commuting been done hundreds Mm -hmm. of thousands of miles Tell me about uh, a breakdown or repair. So, and you've you've heard me ask this question. So, uh, yeah, one I or know. both. So uh, either. A I was bre- thinking about that question. It's not as. Uh, yeah, it's was something that happened when the bike was a few years old. Uh, otherwise, it was usually it's a reliable bike. And most of the the breakdowns, like uh, clutch cable breaking or whatever, that was repairable mm-hmm. pretty much. On site, or for example, I had once the magnets dropping off the the starter motor. Um, okay, you just push start the bike. Yeah, it's not so funny when you're in the gravel, but uh, otherwise, especially if you're two people, it's uh, it's easier. But then I remember I had the uh, the bike. It was about sixty thousand kilometers or something like that. I had it for about four years. Was riding at that time back to university. And I had suddenly the engine just shut off. It was not this usual sputtering when you notice, ah, okay, I'll have to switch to reserve. 
it was really like someone had handled the kill switch, kind of off, and I just on the, I was on the German highway, got out to the right side, brought the bike to a stop, and said, okay, what's going on here? First thing I you, of course, you check for the spark plug. No sparks. Okay. So I checked the fuses and took off the gas tank. Again, this is, these are things that are so easy on the GS. It's really two, two, yeah, it's two, two tubes. You flip off the <laughs> it is clamp at the rear end of the gas tank, and there you are. Yeah. And then I saw it on this, not exactly brand new, but only 60,000 kilometers bike. There were two wires that were, uh, that were leading to the, uh, the ignition coil that had been rubbing against the gas tank or whatever. I don't know. And they were blank there and open. I said, okay, it's probably this one. I took out some of the black electrical tape that I always have in the toolbox. Wrapped it around the parts, hit the start button, and the bike started. So that was it. It's, it's completely non-spectacular. I was not in a hurry. It was not raining. I was not in the wilderness. At all my time, it was a warm and sunny day. And uh, that's it. Why? Nothing really spectacular, nothing sensational, uh, but uh, still something memorable because I was totally surprised that suddenly, like that, uh, the thing dropped out. Yeah, yeah, boy! It, if they could, like, if they could all be uh, that, it, if they could all be that simple, York. Exactly. It's, it's <laughs> uh, the, the the same thing. For example, in the beginning with the the, the first head overhaul. The bike had less than 50,000 kilometers, and it started really to drink oil. 45,000 kilometers, I think. Uh, it had really large oil consumption, more than a liter and 100 kilometers. And I asked BMW, what's going on? Ah, you know, this can happen. So I had the head revi uh, revised, and we found that the valve guys were completely worn out. Wow. It turned out later on that BMW had apparently, in this model year, changed for some other material that, were, that they were trying out. They never admitted this officially, but I heard it from some voices in the bushes that said, okay, but later on they reverted to some other material. And after that, uh, so this was at 45,000, and the next had the revision was more than 90,000 kilometers later. Interesting. So quite, reason, quite reasonable um, uh, yeah, quite reasonable trouble. Well, yeah. that's a good bit of anecdotal information there. I had not heard that with exactly, that yeah. particular model. Those are the things, yeah, around 1990, I think, they, they, they made some modifications there. I don't know why. Yeah. Okay, so that's a perfect segue uh, to the last question here. So uh, as, much time as, as much time as you've spent with these motorcycles, if you could go back in time and change, uh, and let's, I don't want to limit it necessarily to one, because I'm sure there are more than one, but maybe a change or two that you would make in the engineering and design. I heard on the, uh, in your podcast, many people talking about this circlip in the gearbox. Mm -hmm. I, I've got, my bike has gone over 200,000 kilometers. I know I don't have to circlip and I've done no trouble with that. Maybe because it's an 800, but I would change one thing, and that is the oil filter construction. Mm -hmm. You remember when you have the oil filter, there's a metal tube inside the oil filter housing, and you should check at every oil filter change if it's still those, I think, 1.6 millimeter or whatever the depth is. So that when you put the white O-ring in there, this $2,000 O-ring, it just gets slightly compressed. 
without being completely squeaked, but not completely detent, uh, complete detent also. And I had one event really that was in 2006. Bike had about 140,000 kilometers. We were just coming back from the Tuscany trip, the one with the tail light, where I really said, okay, I need to do something. So put the bike in the garage, nothing special. On the next day, I said, okay, let's take the bike out for, uh, for washing it. And I have an occasion where I could wash the bike about one kilometer from the house. So just rode over there, washed the bike, came back to the garage and noticed I was, training, I was trailing oil. I said, what's this? Why, am I, why is the bike losing oil? It was not just dripping. Huh? It was leaking under the oil filter cover. Wow. So I t- it, it, and just imagine, we were just coming back from Tuscany. If this had happened one kilometer or 10 kilometer earlier, the, the engine would be wrecked. Catastrophic, so, yeah. So I, tipped the bike on the, I tipped the bike on the side stand, took out the oil filter uh, cover and measured the depth. And indeed, after 140,000 kilometers, this thing had suddenly settled. Hmm. Nothing. All the all the time before, always the same distance, and then suddenly the thing. Yes, after sixteen years, this thing had suddenly uh, settled and, and lost half a millimeter or what. So I put in some shims, and uh, the problem was solved. But this is something where I said, "Oh my God! If this happens while you're riding, you don't notice it until it's way too late." That's wow! And what what a story! Ever ever since I'm having a look on that area when I when I put the bike. I can on. imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. They, that's funny that you bring that up. I I was explaining just in a general conversation with a friend of mine the sort of uh, odd uh, configuration of the oil filter yeah. on, on the airheads, and I, you know I explained to him the shim and the O ring, and you got to measure this and you me- measure that, and it's three point eight millimeters. It's three point eight. Okay. That's the right dimension. I just. Yeah, and he just sort of looked at me with a puzzled look, and he just said, "It's an oil filter. Why is it so complicated?" Uh, to which, to which my reply was, "I don't know." <laughs> yeah, that's, so- that's the reason why it's called the two thousand dollar O ring. Uh, if, if if the oil doesn't go through the filter, but around it, it somehow goes through the the relief valve, I guess. Yeah. I, uh, I, had you, had I, you- I once was I, I once was really thinking deeply into that, but I I forgot it. I just know okay, the O ring is four millimeter. You want it exactly squeezed, so three point six, three point seven meter, yeah. three point eight millimeters is just right, but it, not more. I, I Otherwise, mean- you would need the shims. Yeah, I had have you. I don't even know if you've thought about it this far, and I don't mean to uh, catch you off guard here. But I mean, how how could that have been? That whole sort of situation been re-engineered or redesigned so it wasn't as complicated? I, I mean, no, a, a spin-on no filter, idea. maybe. I, I don't know. I think I think the oil filter, the oil filter tube. That means the canister where the oil filter is sitting. It's pressed into the engine. Block. That's right. That's right. Maybe it could be go, could go better if it would be just with a uh, with a thread on that, that you could just uh, screw it in and just of pressing it in there. That's right. That's a good point. I hadn't. Thought, I don't know. I don't know. Hadn't thought about it that way. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, Actually, this is the last question, and I, I want to mention this because I thought this uh, was a neat aspect uh, that I saw on your website. You've got a, a Moto Chalet for rent there in Switzerland. Yeah, Moto Chalet, yeah. Tell me about it. That's, excellent. Uh, that's actually a happy incident because with my wife, we moved 
houses in 2018. And the house that we finally bought came with a second house, with a chalet on the same ground. I said to my wife, actually, what do we want with the second house? I mean, the, the kids are out of the house. Uh, we essentially buy the house for the two of us. And she said, let's put it on booking.com. Let's rent it. And actually, this, is, this turned out nicely because people are satisfied. We essentially dressed the house, um, I mean, with all the installations, everything in. What would I need or what would I look for if I wanted, for example, uh, to rent a house somewhere for two days, three days, two weeks, whatever, to spend your holidays? And the whole chalet is built so that someone can live in there for several days or several weeks. We have space up to four, uh, up to four people. And since this house also has a, uh, has a garage in the basement, I said, hey, let's, off, let's offer this also specifically to motorcycle riders. Love it, love it. So you, have a, you have a closed garage for your motorcycle where you can do the maintenance. You have good lighting. If you need any tools, you can get them from me. You have the barbecue grill. You have your own kitchen, you have the fondue set, and everything is in there, and you're in a silent corner, and you have a view over to the Mont Blanc. Oh, wow. So this, uh, that, so this, and, and it turns out nicely. I mean, through the website, through the Moto Chalet, are relatively few people that are coming. Most are coming really through booking.com. Uh, I mean, the, the same site is available under another name, which is um, theguesthouse.ch. It's funny because the guesthouse.ch was taken, and I looked, okay, the guesthouse.ch, and this was not taken. So it's available for the two sides. The conditions are the same. It's just the motor chalet is much more focused on motorcycle riders. And, of course, if they come here, we have lots of trips of, uh, of recommendations where people could go for Indeed, eating yeah. or for whatever. So you have the parking lots. You have the, the, the ranching opportunities. You can sunbat up here, and uh, everything is there. Perfect. And, uh, and, after all, I mean, the, the boss is a motorcycle rider. <laughs> and, and that's exactly well said. And again, we'll have uh, a link to your webpage in the About section uh, so folks can find out more information about that. And don't be surprised uh, if, you get, if you get a few calls from some podcast, I, yeah. podcast listeners. Or, may, uh, as I mentioned, I have a friend who's from Switzerland. And uh, maybe we'll uh, one of these days yeah. we'll come over there okay. and, and take you up I, on. I, I found the, the same listening to your podcast. I found out that some people from ADV Rider are, for example, in Zurich. I learned that recently, so it's uh, it's quite funny. The world is a is a small place. It is actually. I wanted to ask you something. Yes. What brought you to make this podcast? Well, York, that's a good question, uh, and you you alluded to it a little bit. Uh, it, it started out with an idea for. ADV Rider. Um, I've, I've, been uh -huh. a, I'd, I've been a member of that website, uh, that forum rather, since, uh, I don't know, 2006 or 2007. And a few years yeah. back, uh, I noticed just on their homepage one day, I was glancing at it and I noticed they had a video section, um, you know, YouTube links, uh -huh. a news section, uh, all, you know, different clickable uh, areas on, on the website, and I, but they didn't have a podcast. So I wrote one of the administrators and said, hey, I'm a radio producer. I'd be interested in producing a podcast for you guys. Can I send you uh, a short demo, a short uh, program demonstration, and let me know what you think? So I, uh -huh. I did one on Ted Porter, uh, who's an airhead. I'm sure that's the first one we did. Absolutely. Actually. Absolutely, yeah. 
And so I put together one. Actually, it was through ADV, the writer, that I found your uh, your podcast. Oh, right at the. Perfect. I'm looking at the site. And, uh, actually, I'm I'm looking at the site pretty much every day, but uh, it doesn't mean that I'm reading through the site. I have five <laughs> or six websites where I'm on, and just looking at the main page. And then I suddenly one day I saw the podcast and I said, "Hey, what's this?" Perfect. Perfect. So I produced a a, a short sort of short series, a demonstration series for Adventure Rider. And I said, hey, look, I'm going to do the first five programs are going to be airhead based because that's my sweet spot. That's what I know the most about. But uh -huh. th but this could be a podcast that really covers all of adventure motorcycling and and things in between, you know, whether it's gear or uh, trips, anyway. Accessories, yeah, all that parts, kind of stuff. Yeah. That was the idea. It was going to yeah, be... Yeah, technical parts, for example, you have them in the, in the, in the podcast also. I, yeah. I actually like listening to them because it's different to what you see on what you see on websites. Yeah, so yeah. it was, it was going to be sort of an all-encompassing uh, program for Adventure Rider, not necessarily Airhead-related. So what ended up, the short story is what ended up happening Uh, in 2022, we were set to launch. They liked the idea. We signed a contract, uh, a, a letter of agreement. Uh, they were going to pay me a, a reasonable sum of money, not a whole lot of money, to, to produce uh, these uh, programs for them. They were going to run them for a month. And if they liked the idea, they would pick up the option and I would do it as a regular series for a year. And what ended up happening right before we were set to launch in 2022, uh, ADV Rider was purchased uh, by a uh, large uh, web conglomerate uh, forum owner. I can't remember uh, what the name was. I got a note um, from the site administrator and it basically said, look, you know, we love this idea. We've just sold the website. They're not interested in producing a podcast. Oh. How however... Since we signed a letter of agreement, we're going to pay you the money that was promised in the contract uh, and good luck with your program. So I took that money. Okay. I, I took that money and said, well, if I'm not going to do it for Adventure Rider, let's just make it airhead focused. Uh, and that that's how the program started. Okay. I was always wondering because it's. In the beginning, look to who who is going to listen to that. It's kind of the same question of how many people are riding an airhead today. Yeah. But then again, if you go to a motorcycle meeting, for example, especially I'm coming back to the the HPN forum, which is airhead aficionados and uh, obsessed people. Uh, it's great, <laughs> but it's 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 also a highly tolerant community. It's not like, for example, in a Harley meeting when you show up with the Yamaha, they will just crucify you. That's it. <laughs> and BMW, it's, especially with the with the GSs, it's totally tolerant. I mean, if someone shows up with his Ducati, then uh, okay, people will look at it, interested, will uh, make comments about the chain drive, of course. I mean. Shaft drive versus chain drive. There's nothing to discuss, and but uh, it's, it's absolutely tolerant because we all we are all motorcycle riders. We are all into traveling. We are all into seeing other people, seeing other places, and we're all about gathering together and and, and and having a fun time together. And this is so beautiful in that community. I think it is. Well said, York. Well said. Well, look, uh, great visit today. I'm glad we got a chance to connect. Really enjoyed spending some time with you. Thank you. 
All right, glad you made it this far. As we mentioned, a really long episode this week, but lots of great information and fun talk. As I mentioned, we've got a link to Jorg's webpage in the About section of the podcast. When you look at the link and click on it, you'll see why I didn't bother pronouncing it or trying to spell it. So check that out. All his LED and electrical products are for sale as well, and some great information on the history of that bike we discussed. All right, until next time, so long, everybody. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time. Thank you.